Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Welcome to Lean Whiskey, our first episode of 2023. Good to see everybody. And of course, Mark, good to see you as always. Yeah, Jamie, great to see you. Happy New Year, even though, yeah, we're a little far into January, but I'll say it anyway. A little, a little far into it, although I find myself, uh, everybody I talk to for the first time, I still have to still have to say it, uh, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, uh, I'm not terribly superstitious about the magic of of turning the calendar to a new 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 page, but uh, I, I'm I'm personally hoping for a better 2023. So if you're not, I'll accept the superstition this time. Are, are you just a little bit stitious? I'm a little bit superstitious. Little yes. stitious. Sorry. <laughs> I was always superstitious about travel, you know, travel myths, and and uh, you know, I never wanted to tempt the the travel gods just because it seemed they had it out for me, but. Most other superstitions I didn't follow, including Friday the 13th and things like that. But, yep, I'll, I'll, I'll accept uh, 2023 new, maybe not new year, new me, but at least new year, you know, new something. So to be healthy, wealthy and wise. Is that the I'll oldest? Just take healthy. I'll take I'll take healthy. Take healthier. Uh, wealthy is is what it is. And 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 wise is it, well, I'm either locked and loaded or, or not. So so I'll just take the healthy. Yeah. Well, we're excited about one of our friends, a uh, whiskey maker. I think he's going to have an exciting 2023 ahead. So why don't, why don't we talk about that? Yeah, it's uh, super exciting to see uh, uh, a whiskey of the year. Um, in this case, U.S. micro whiskey of the year from the Jim Murray, uh, Jim Murray Whiskey Bible, which is, you know, really the, <laughs> the standard. Um, this uh, is a, I've got a 2014 copy. Land. Okay. Yeah. So it comes out every year, which is a great, great way to, you know, keep selling, keep selling books and they review everything under the sun and they give out some awards. And, and so the, 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 the U S uh, micro whiskey of the year is, is Glens Creek distillery OCD number five, which is, as you know, always been a favorite of mine. And we've, we've, I know we've mentioned Glens Creek, and our friend Dave Meyer, and here's a bottle of OCD number five. I, I forgot to go back and look at exactly what episode we can link. Yeah, in the it's in there somewhere. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know, a validation that one of our favorite whiskeys is a big award winner now. So congratulations to Dave and the, yeah. whole, team, the whole team there at Glens Creek. Yep. So uh, it's well done. Hey. Oh. <laughs> hey look, look who we have here. You? <laughs> Somebody sent me a message said you were talking about me. How'd you get in? <laughs> well, you know, I've got my ways. He is the original lean whiskey master. So uh, he's, uh, I guess, got an open invitation. But David, the the creator of OCD Number no. 5 and Glens Creek Distillery, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really uh, an honor, I think. To be recognized, uh, as you guys know, for for what you do and for that people appreciate it, and certainly we have a lot of 
customers, a lot of repeat customers, and that's a great indication that we're doing something here. You guys, you know, Mark, you've been here a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Jamie, you've been here. And uh, so, but, you know, Jim Murray to be recognized at that level and, and to be put up next to some pretty, pretty amazing products is, is really, uh, it's really great. And we're, we're very excited about it. Yeah. Well, it's a, to make a connection to lean, it's sort of like a Shingo prize for whiskey. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I have a Shingo prize too, but (laughs) (laughs) that that was another life, a different life, but, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of correlation here and what we're doing and, and, uh, just, you know, looking at problem solving and, and improving, you know, applying Kaizen thinking. And, and, uh, we've managed to go from, you know, four barrels a month to now up to 23, 24 barrels a month. And without the addition of cost and by process improvements and, and, uh, applying some of the things we, we know, and, you know, like, like every other workplace, there's, there's still constant challenges. You know, there's, there's things are not going to work right. Uh, people are going to make mistakes. Things are going to, you know, challenge you all the time. And uh, you just have to keep working at it. And, uh, you know, seven years now, we're an overnight success with the, the kind of recognition that we're starting to get. And and that's that's really great uh, and uh, gratifying, you know. It's, when I was there in December visiting you, I remember you saying that, Dave, um, it's really just, it's all about problem solving, which I think is a great lesson for a distillery or for any business sort of like, well, what lean tools should we implement? I mean, it sounds like, well, meh, problem solving. Right. Yeah. You know, it's always starting with that question. What problem are you trying to solve? And uh, looking at that and what, you know, what's really fascinating to me because I, I reflect on this a lot, this, this idea of, you know, Kaizen improving and, sometimes you know like the i was on the moonshiners uh, tv show and they came here to explore the sour mash and the sour mash process so so i went back online and i looked up dr crow's you know supposed recipe that where he was sour mashing and uh, this time when i the first time i looked at it which was years ago it's kind of like oh okay here's his recipe and here's what you know here's how he made whiskey or something and uh, this time the question was a little different. I was looking at it from the standpoint of um, what was the purpose? What were they really trying to do and what did they really understand and so on? And so as I looked at, as I looked at that again, from a, from a different angle, uh, I, I realized that, that maybe we could take some of those ideas that they were applying and apply those in our own case. And, you know, we had been doing things a certain way because, it seemed to me like that's what everybody said, the way you're supposed to do it. You know, and one, what, what I'm referring to really is the uh, water to grain ratio when you cook the, when you cook the grain. And as I, as I thought about that, then I realized, you know, we could, we could actually heat up less water, which is an energy savings, mm-hmm. um, increase the amount of grain in that water. And then, uh, add cool water, which, which is kind of what they were doing. You, you're adding cool water afterwards to kind of bring the temperature down to the point where you can do the next step. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we were able to I- increase our yield from 
previous record of uh, 18 barrels a month to last two months with 23 and 24 uh, barrels. And so it, what strikes me sometimes is kind of like, well, what took so long to come to that realization? You know, what, why didn't we realize that a long time ago? And I think uh, sometimes, I don't know, it's like the, the saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And <laughs> to me, it's like when the idea, when the student is ready, the idea appears that you yeah. suddenly realize, oh, here, here's a different way to think about it or a different way to go about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you have to constantly uh, work to not just keep doing it the same way, but constantly rethink that and ask the questions uh, sort of in a different way. And, and again, the last time I looked at his recipe was, what is he doing? And this time I looked at it as, why is he doing it that way? And for what purpose? And, and uh, so that kind of caused me to rethink it. So, so the, the uh, TV show, while well, it caused me to, to relook at things and, and to come up with some improvement. So we're, we're, Trying to do that all the time, you know, it's, um, as you well know, you look around any workplace and there's everything could be improved and, and nothing is at the perfect state. And so it's, it's more, some days it's like, okay, that, that situation has bugged me long enough that today's the day that I'm going to do something about it and, yeah. and uh, resolve it. Cause there's no shortage. I mean, we say it's a distillery. There's always something broken or needing to be fixed or repaired or whatever. So. Well, right. I think it's a matter of it, it's, it's either bugging you enough or sometimes you finally see the problem or, you know, to make a lean point, not a whiskey point. I work with people in healthcare. When they start to see waste and problems, they'll go through cycles of grief where they feel they get really upset of like, well, why didn't we notice this problem before? Why didn't we fix it before? And I try to coach them. Like, I mean, easier said than done. You can't tell someone don't feel bad, but this happens. Well, yeah, I think you and I talked about that in December and that I, I even after all these years and in, in my own experience and knowing better, sometimes I feel that way. You look at it and go, gosh, what, what took so long? You know, why didn't I see that? Um, but it's, you know, it's not, per, it, it's not personal. The, the, the situation comes to your attention when it's time to come to your attention, I guess. And just because you didn't recognize it before, again, my situation, I just explained something caused me to look at it different. If that hadn't occurred, I may never have looked at it in a different way, and I may never have found a different uh, possibility. So I, I kind of explore that notion and realize that, okay, when, I, when, when a situation comes up and we realize we can make an improvement, I'll look at it and I'll think, what, what was the obstacle kind of in the way that didn't allow us to see that sooner? And what was it that kind of pushed us past that? And is there some way that you can incorporate that in your uh, daily thinking so that you can uh, initiate it? And, and, you know, that's why they say the outside eyes, because the outside eyes are, aren't used to it. You walk in a situation, it looks the same to you every day. You do the same thing every day. It, it's, it's normal, natural, and, and effective. And so you keep doing it. Somebody else might come in and say, hey, um, have you ever thought about this or, or what about that? And so that that can also spur the thinking. So, yeah, you, you've really got to have that learner's mindset to be open to any of that, though. And, you know, I, I think the whiskey field on both sides of the counter um, are, are filled with just that's how you're supposed to do it. Don't don't question it. Don't be 
open to new ideas. So on the on the consumer side, there's a lot of norms and standards from how you drink it to, you know, you should always pay above market price for anything from Buffalo Trace and a whole bunch of silly things like that. They're just accepted as this is how it is. Don't ask, don't question it, because if you do, you lose your membership card. And even no. on, the, on the production side, there's plenty of, well, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what we've done for hundreds of years. And, you know, I, I still recall, uh, you know, when you were taking me through uh, your, your process and we got to walk around, I mean, you really were approaching it from, let's try to understand what makes a great whiskey. And, and be curious about that and be experimental about that, always be, you know, trying some new things. And so if you're not open to that, you could hear some, you could be, have some great learning come your way, but it'll never enter in where it's supposed to uh, right. and then yeah. the rest of the knowledge. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. You know, I, I sort of analyzed the, the industry myself and uh, finally came to the realization that a big challenge here is it's not at all lean from the standpoint of just in time, you know, distill it today, sell it tomorrow, uh, <laughs> only distill what's already sold or what your customers already purchased or any of those kind of notions. And so the industry, you know, by and large has billions of dollars invested in the possibility of, you know, something working out in the future. And so <clears throat> they were uh, very, very reluctant to, to change anything because of that. Because yeah. you've got such such great risk between the day you distill it and the day you might uh, bottle it and sell it, uh, you know years years of inventory, uh, billions of dollars, kind of thing, and so the advantage we have of being smaller, and we have we have the advantage of flexibility, and we have the advantage that we can make a small experiment and try something out, and you know don't have uh, billions of dollars invested. And don't have to be concerned about okay, we we can't change a thing. I mean, there, there's this. You talked about superstition earlier, and uh, there's almost a su su superstition in this business that you don't want to change a thing because if you change something and you find out, you know, four, six, eight, ten years later that it didn't work out, uh, you're kind of in trouble at that point. So, right. So I, I wanted to ask you about these different, um, different barrels. And I'm, I'm going to admit a mistake here. Um, you, you, you talked about learning from mistakes and you did an episode of my favorite mistake with me, Dave, but I intended from our stash here to open up uh, a bottle from barrel 23 that, that you've signed. It says 2018. And then one shelf had a barrel 54, which must've been from our next visit. Well, me being a knucklehead, I managed to open a different bottle, and I have two bottles from the same barrel. So my side-by-side <laughs> -side tasting is that that's not a good exercise. They <laughs> uh, should taste pretty much the same. Now, you know, <laughs> two, different barrels, two different barrels, you're likely to notice some difference well, for sure. That's what I wanted to ask about. But, Jamie, which one do you have? Yeah, I've got barrel 66. Um, so that's what I've, I've, uh, I've cracked today. Um, but uh, but you know we, we we can read you know we can read um, uh, you know Jim Murray's tasting notes and and Mark and I try not to do tasting notes on this show because we're just not not good at it we're just not pros in that category but what are you know how how do you describe OCD number five to somebody tastes like bourbon <laughs> <laughs> you know we we don't 
we don't do that either. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I can, when I'm tasting with visitors, we can talk more effectively about, for example, a sensation. Okay. Oh, I, I, I get sweetness on the front of my tongue at the beginning of that, or, Oh, I get a little spicy peppery on the finish or, Oh, it's, you know, tingling on the back of my tongue or that sort of thing. Um, you know, what, what you taste is really subjective. And, um, you know, I don't know if some of those guys really taste those things or not. I, what I'd love to do is conduct an experiment, probably never happen, to say, okay, bring in a, you know, panel of these tasting experts, uh, six or seven people, uh, do some blind tasting, write down your notes, what, write down your, your uh, you know, what you taste, you taste, and then, and then uh, send them away, have them come back a couple months later and open the same ones and do the <laughs> same tasting and compare the notes and see how close they are. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think if you, you know, you could probably memorize a list of typical flavor notes and descriptions that, that you might get out of a product. Um, but people come in and ask me, you know, well, what does this one taste like? Bourbon. You know, okay. You, you taste it yourself. I mean, that's the only real way to do it is you got to taste it yourself. Now, if you find some reviewer who recommends something and then you go and taste it and, and you agree, oh, that's really good. I like that. And, and over time you realize, well, this person has a similar preference to what you have. Then maybe you can kind of rely on, on their uh, suggestions. But if you go online and look under any product, you're going to see people who love it. You're going to see people who don't love it. And that's just normal. You know, there are some some prevalent flavors that are present, some some vanillins, uh, cinnamonoids. You know, these are chemicals that we know are present and pretty much they come, they're derived from the wood. And, you know, if you're putting your product in the wood for some period of time, you're going to have those those notes present. Um, but But other than that, I just, you know, I said, look, just try it. And, and for us, it's simple. You like it or you don't. And um, so. I, I love that description and, and explanation. And, you know, we have a, you know, a no judgment to, uh, sort of policy around whiskey. And, you know, you want you want to put it on ice. Uh, you, you want to mix Pappy and, and, and Diet Coke, you know. <laughs> well, it's your drink. It's your glass. So do do whatever you want to do. But uh, I, uh, I concur. I concur with you there, except the fact that you know if you're going to pay that much for something, <laughs> um, it it doesn't make sense to put it with Coke. Go go and buy a nice everyday drinking bourbon that's you know twenty five thirty bucks and and mix it with Coke. I don't have a problem. If you want to take our stuff and mix it with Coke? It's <laughs> your money, and you can spend it how you want. But but I think there's some uh, very expensive products that, uh, you know, it just from, from a from a frugal guy standpoint, it yeah. just doesn't make sense to, to spend that much money and then cover it up with something and you don't taste what what's actually going on. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you, Dave, um, looking at what Jim Murray wrote here, it looks like he tasted barrel number 83 and right. every single barrel is different. Um, do you, do you feel like newer barrels, do you think there's been an evolution in how your bourbon tastes like bourbon? Is there a Kaizen flavor that seeps in over time or is it, 
is it pretty consistent? You know, that's a great question. And it's a difficult one to answer. I think that what we talk about and I've been talking about more, more lately is my, my concern is that, uh, we may, so, so we're testing some barrels right now. We pull samples from barrels. We taste them. We decide whether we think one is, is ready to go. It's not a question of whether it's good or not good or good or bad. It's a question of, is it ready? Has the wood done enough? Has it been there? You know, do you get the flavors that you want from the wood and so on? And I think sometimes for us, for me in particular, um, we're on barrel 100 now. So if I sample something, I'm mentally comparing it to, you know, a hundred barrels and saying, all right, is it, is it in that range? I mean, does it, does it qualify to, to go up there against those guys? And and then the other, the other concern is, so I might be, might be too harsh on uh, ourselves to say, okay, we have a higher expectation now as time goes on. Maybe, maybe the concern is if we put something out there that's not quite going to do it. But, but I can tell you this: those, those concerns are unfounded. I, I know that. I, I know that um, because. It doesn't matter what we put on the table. Uh, it doesn't taste bad. So that's the key. It, 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 and what I can tell you with certainty is that some people will like it. Some people will not. And that's normal. And that's okay. Uh, there's no, I don't think there's any product out there that's going to have universal acceptance no matter what. Sure. Okay. And we, we have, and I, Jim Murray talks about it. I think uh, the OCD premium, he didn't list it as a premium, but he talks about how we make it. Um, and I, I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of 95% of people who taste that are just blown away by it and really, really enjoy it. But there's a few who say, you know what? I like the regular OCD better. It's the, the premium is fuller, more complex. It's got more wood action going on, you know, and some people, like their bourbon a little bit lighter, if you will. So was that the one that he listed um, 96 points DB? Does that mean double barreled? You know, I, I got to go back and look and see what DB means, but no, it wasn't double barreled. I don't, um, I, I kept seeing that on his reviews and I, I haven't gone back to the front to see what his code is uh, for that. I think it's something about distiller distilled, distillery barrel or something to that effect it's oh it's um i i've got the book here and it stands for yeah distillery bottling uh question brought out by owners of the distillery yeah yeah so anyway well guys i don't want to hold up your show i know you got things to talk about here and uh i just wanted to pop in and uh thank you for for uh mentioning us again and and for enjoying uh what we do here yeah well cheers cheers to you the team and and more success yeah so hopefully you guys can get down here again mark you're not too far away now so no, no real excuses you know i'm i'm only an hour and a half away and here's here's a stretch goal for the year like without having to hire a camera crew or something maybe jamie and i can can both be there and we can do an episode together in person with you yeah that'd be awesome love to do it well, again, congratulations, Dave. We'll we'll post all, all kinds right, of things. Well, happy new year, and hopefully a better one for you, Jamie, this year. Yeah, be well. All right, thanks you too, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Dave.
Um, I'm so excited for him. And you know, long maybe a question for next time is, did he forecast getting this recognition? <laughs> well, that's the thing, because you see these things that when they become popular, you can't find them. And so selfishly, I'm a little, a little nervous that I won't be able to find what is probably my favorite bourbon out there. So, um, and I can't find it in Pennsylvania anyway, but, uh, um, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I certainly hope it does fly off the shelf. I think that'll be, you know, great for his business and his brand and his recognition, um, you know, right, right outside, right outside Lexington, I'll say not right outside, but outside Lexington and, you know, an, an easy, an easy stop for a tour. And, you know, we didn't really talk about it this time, but I mean, th this is just one of many whiskeys that he has, right? Um, yeah. All sorts of different uh, whiskeys, uh, you know, continue. It really, um, you know, Four Roses, which is also not far away, still only has four whiskeys. <laughs> um, and, and, and at least in terms of different expressions and, you know, different, different bottlings, he, he, he can blow them away. And, and so that continued... I'll say curiosity and exploration, experimentation is, is great to see what they're doing. I'm going to hold that up for the camera for those who are watching. But yeah, I want to go drive down and visit and buy a couple more bottles, not to hoard it, but before the book <laughs> is officially out and the word gets out. But you're right. There's the, the OCD bourbon. And if I remember right, it's 70% um, corn, 20% rye, 10% barley. Um, he's also got a whiskey, call, he calls it Sweet where you replace the rye with, bar, uh, with barley. Mm -hmm. with, no, I'm sorry. You, re, you replace the rye with wheat, and wheat. it's the same 70-20-10, but corn, wheat, and barley. And I, the last time I did a side-by-side -side of those, I mean, I like the OCD number five. I think I preferred – I like a wheated bourbon. So um, the sweet is, is really nice. And then also – getting rave reviews in, in the whiskey Bible was a release of his that was born out of a mistake. The cob, the corn only bourbon. We'll right. get Dave to tell the story someday. But when I was there in December, he was talking about how like someone meaning him forgot to order rye and somebody working there, if I'm remembering this right, said, well, let's try making something that's hundred percent corn rather than sit and do nothing. <laughs> so, yep. No, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, I haven't had either of those. I've had, um, you know, it's still on my, on my cart is, a uh, uh, Cuervo, uh, Cuervo Vito, uh, Vivo, Cuervo Vivo. Um, Cuervo yeah. Vivo? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cuervo Vivo. I think that's right. Um, the, uh, the OCD number five and Cafe Olay. Cafe Olay. Um, Jim Murray also liked that a lot. Not that I'm looking for the validation that I love that, but. I love, I love both of those, um. And uh, yeah, I honestly, I had to open this bottle for tonight because I was hanging on to it. I didn't want to open it because then it would be my last. I knew once I opened it, it'll be my, you know, the end of my OCD number five until I make it over there again. So again, me being a knucklehead, um, thankfully, whiskey doesn't go bad the way wine does when you've opened it. But I mean, if anything, I'm tasting the difference between uh, a half empty bottle that's been open for a couple of years versus a brand new bottle. Uh, no no real difference, but all no, and, and, and I, you know, in terms of experimentation and understanding cause and effect, there's, you know, there's these, the, uh, really a myth uh, that, you know, your whiskey can oxidize and, and it's, it's been proven that that really isn't a problem. Sunlight yeah. is a problem. 
I've, I've, I've had two bottles that I can remember that were very low and I think they had gone bad. Like you can tell when that's happened. One was, I think a bottle of Johnny Walker green label scotch, mm-hmm. which is a, a probably my favorite um, Johnny Walker. And then one other bear, bottle recently. And that's the risk. Like, so I've, I've got kind of a policy. Yeah, if you're down to a final pour, um, finish it, but you know, like basically there's, you know, I could keep this bottle on the shelf like this for years and it's really not going to be a problem as long as it's not getting a lot of sunlight. Yeah. And then um, since we're mentioning weeded bourbon and Jim Murray, U.S. Micro Whiskey of the Year um, recipients, I'm going to make a, a gratuitous book plug here as well. So behind me on, on my shelf is a Garrison Brothers Ball Murray. This has won that same Jim Murray recognition uh, three consecutive years. Yeah, and I think it was three, Apple yeah. Bourbon has won it a couple times. And there were a couple other winners, but David um, sort of, you know, ended the uh, the three-year streak, the three-peat of my uh, other friends also at Garrison Brothers. But, you know, David talked about learning from mistakes. And in my upcoming book about learning from mistakes, there are stories both from David and his distillery and his Toyota days and Dan Garrison and Donis Todd, whose names are on these bottles, of them also having a culture of learning from mistakes and some great stories. And if it's not correlation, it's causation. I'm going to say a culture of learning from mistakes leads to award-winning bourbon. I said it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's, that's the spirit. It's, it's the learning, the learning mindset, um, you know, as, as David talked about was just, Hey, I, you know, the show came, I uh, went to go look at the recipe, did it with a learner's mindset, which is not what he said, but is just who he is, right? And and so did it with Laura's mindset. New new insights and lessons came out of that, and, and and that's you know I think that's that's what it's really all about, and that's you know that's the the take of your book, which is that that learner's mindset of how uh, mistakes lead to uh, lead lead to progress, lead to improvement, self improvement, organizational improvement, and everything else. And like you said, that's that's the spirit. <laughs> that is the spirit. Yeah, there you go. So, um, yeah, I, I stumble into puns every once in a while. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, I forget what comedian I'm thinking of, but I remember him saying something like, people don't care if your puns were intended or not. You know, when <laughs> people will say, pun, oh, pun. no, no pun intended. Like, yeah. We don't care. Just own it. Just own it. Just accept it. Just uh, win the day. Um yeah. Yeah, it's 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 we, when we when we mean it, we want full credit for it, and when we don't, we don't want to think we don't want people to think that we you know we we made a joke that didn't land, right? So uh, we want a backdoor out of our puns. So so speaking of learning and mistakes, or or perhaps not, uh, we have a topic that we wanted to get into today, uh, which was around the the improvement or not of uh, patient safety. The numbers seem to show, and I've seen experts say not improve, generally speaking. I, thank you for trying to segue that, because I didn't know how I was going to pull that off, going from lighthearted oh, fun. Lean sometimes and just, we don't care about a segue. <laughs> uh, next topic. Um, but yeah, there, there, there were big headlines this week and articles going around, um, you know, trying to compare back to 1999, you know, the famed... Um, Institute of Medicine report to Eris Human that estimated, and we can get into this, why it's only estimates, 
between 44,000 and 98,000 Americans dying each year due to medical error. A couple of years ago, there was a different study that said one out of every four Medicare patients who were admitted to hospitals were harmed by a quote unquote adverse event. And you know, I'd always thought, well, I don't know why Medicare patients would be any more unlucky than the, the general population. You can say, well, are they are they prone to adverse events, which includes errors, mistakes, process problems? Um, the new study that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine said one out of four hospitalized patients um, experiences an adverse event, and 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 there's kind of a breakdown that we can drill into, and, and questions around like there are certainly pockets of excellence. I know stories and examples of people who have eliminated certain types of harm, certain infections, falls, pressure ulcers. But um, the old uh, expression that was popular at MIT, William Gibson, the science fiction author who said the future has already been invented. It's just not widely distributed yet. And I would say the same thing applies to radically better patient safety. Yeah, and and you know, so this this uh, New England Journal of Medicine report was picked up by NBC News. Uh, I mean, they actually covered it. I'm pretty sure they covered it in the you know the 6:30 it was. Know, news with uh, Lester Holt. Um, and 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 of course, you, you know, as soon as I heard it, it's like one in four have adverse adverse effects. I'm like, that number's huge. That sounds that sounds massive. Um, and this is why headlines versus, you know, the depth of the story matters so much, because, you know, right out of the gate, um, I, I think it was, uh, and I don't know if we have this number captured or extracted, but I think 60% of them or over 60% of them were, uh, you know, some version of like side effects from, it was 40% of side effects from medicine, which, you know, it can be an adverse effect, but it was it was known and intended when you chose to take that. Yeah, there, there's there's a difference between oh, we didn't realize that medication was going to cause a problem, and then there's right. we gave you the wrong medicine, like not the one we intended to give, and then there's um, we gave it to you even though there was a known allergy. There are different levels of like clearly preventable um, that shouldn't have happened events versus things that were just a bad outcome. But if you look at, at some of the numbers, um, and, and, and first off, you know, the, these, the, it's important to say these are estimates. These are not known numbers. So what happens in these studies is, in this case, they reviewed uh, 2,800 admissions from 11 Massachusetts hospitals in 2018. That's not many. Like there's a big health system here in the DFW area that has 200,000 admissions a year across right their hospital. So here's a sampling of a sample and they have to do this chart review and surmise what happened because there's not mandatory non-punitive reporting like you would have in say aviation. So, you know, they right. say, and, well, and just to, just to tie into aviation, right. We have a massive incident this week where at JFK, there was a near miss where a Delta jet almost ran into I'll say one of my Delta jets ran in, almost ran into one of your American airlines since right. those, those tend to be the airlines we probably own more. But, but it, you know, the near miss by a thousand yards or something, I, I can't remember what the number was, was national news right. and everything's nope. reported. 
there's no hiding it though. There's no covering no hiding it. when people realize their planes suddenly hit the brakes during takeoff. And then there's the disclosure. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm screwing up and citing a different comedian who says it's, it's really a near collision, not a near miss. <laughs> we use that term in healthcare too, but um, there's a problem in healthcare, as, as Don Berwick pointed out, Dr. Don Berwick, um, founder of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, pointed out in his commentary piece that went along with the study. He's like, well, why didn't the study talk about near misses? You know, that that's an opportunity for learning, whether it's um, a distillery or aviation or a hospital. Yeah. And, and the whole idea of, of near miss, which is, you know, uh, yeah, probably very much the wrong word compared to near collision or near uh, near accident. But the reason we look at that, so let's just take manufacturing and safety incidents. The, the reason we look at near misses mm -hmm. so aggressively is that there's a ton more data, mm -hmm. um, right? Because there's just more of them. Uh, there's more to learn out of them. And quite frankly, when you really study, especially, you know, especially safety incidents, but I would apply, suggest this applies to, you know, healthcare adverse effects as well, is that the difference between a bad outcome and a good outcome from a near miss is random, mm -hmm. it's just random luck, right? So you trip and fall, uh, did you land on something sharp and pointy or not is just luck, right? Sure. It was the fall that caused it, and sometimes it has an adverse outcome, and sometimes it doesn't. So, but then, eliminate the fall, you eliminate the adverse effect. Then the near miss is I tripped over something, but I thankfully, you know, you look at the Toyota factory walking safety rules. You know, you trip over, you stumble, but your hands weren't in your pockets, and you weren't looking at your phone, and you managed to balance yourself, and you didn't fall. That's also an opportunity for learning because if you don't learn from the stumble then someone is going to trip and fall and get hurt and maybe hit their head and die. Yep. And the, 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 the proportions, and it's, um, I think it's called the Heinrich Pyramid, that Alcoa and other safety experts point to this ratio of about, I think it's about 10 to 1. Of yeah, like 10 to 1. Fatalities, yep. serious harm, injuries, um, near misses. Like There are so many more near misses to learn from. That's how you prevent the severe injuries and the fatalities. Yeah, and, and and when you look at this, um, you know, in healthcare in particular, if once you have an adverse effect, you know, there's a decent chance you you know that that lawyers end up involved, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so so there's a resistance to be too forthcoming because we say too much and it ends up in a deposition, so on and so forth. But you know, if you look at the near misses, there's no, no lawyers involved, right? Because nothing bad happened, and, and so I, that's why I feel it's it's a shame that we're not better at leveraging that in healthcare, because yeah. it's less risky to look at, and it's much richer in terms of in terms of data and you know opportunity, et cetera. And that's the connection between psychological safety leading to physical safety. If people right. point out a risk or a near miss, or I made a mistake, but we caught it and it didn't hurt somebody. If the reaction is punishment, people learn to not speak up. And, that, and that's right. the psychological safety um, challenge in healthcare. But, you know, to, to, to go through some of these numbers here, um, and, and the, the, you can get a free account on the New England Journal of Medicine website that gives you two articles a month. So you can get the study and then you can get the Don Berwick 
piece, which is a nice summary and some of his commentary, but some of the his numbers. Two page, his two-page summary is fantastic. Yeah, it's executive summary and with, with some opinion, which I think we can touch on here too. But so again, estimates from this limited chart review, and then they extrapolate. But from the chart review, 23% adverse events, which and like I'm always careful of euphemisms, right? Or, you know, mm-hmm. language, it's interesting. But then 9% of admissions had a quote-unquote serious adverse event. So not 9% of the adverse events, but 9%. So one oh. in 10 right. admissions had a serious adverse event. But then here's what they, I think this is interesting. And I don't think it was super clear other than it being a matter of professional opinion that mm-hmm. 22.7% of the adverse events were quote, judged to be preventable. So then you end up saying, well, there was a preventable adverse event in 7% of all admissions. And then you start doing the math and here, here's the, 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 I think the, the most shocking number. Preventable adverse events categorized as serious, life-threatening, or fatal were identified in approximately 1%. So that's one out of 100 admitted patients, and I'm not naming names here, and I'm not saying they're atypical, but major DFW area health system with 200,000 hospital admissions a year, that would mean 2,000 serious, life-threatening, or fatal incidents a year. Yep. That's huge. It's it's huge. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, if you're already close to healthcare, they can then deal with the adverse event and hopefully prevent it coming from becoming a fatal event. Right. Which is some of the some of the times why, you know, you, you you're like, well, we want you to sit here for a few hours. I right? just we want to, you know, because that's when the adverse event effect will, will take place. Um, and, and and so knowing, you know, when it's knowable. Versus the, you know, most most of the um, the uh, preventable uh, ones are, you know, mistakes and errors, and so you didn't know to to hang on to a patient, watch them, or anything else. But the known ones, the unpreventable ones, like when we give you this medication, it may cause a stroke, right? Okay, well, if it causes a stroke, it's now a serious life threatening event, but you're already in the hospital, so. Well, there's a difference between known risk, but it's better than not using the medication. The risk of not doing it is worse exactly. than the risk of trying it. But then, you know, there, there are, um, you know, the wrong side surgeries, the wrong medications being given, um, yep. different complex systems issues that lead to patients getting infections, pressure ulcers, and, 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 and being injured by falls. And and so you know I I I think for one like I wish there was a separation between bad outcome and error or mistake. Not all bad outcomes are caused by a mistake. Right. Like I I I would want to look at data that way. And then there's the debate around what's preventable. And and Don Berwick in his piece, and I I for what it's worth, I would fall in his camp. And some others I've talked to this week agree. He says, um, you know, Dr. Don Berwick said, um, it's better to consider this to be all preventable. Let's not make, I'm paraphrasing now, let's not make excuses for problems we we haven't yet figured out how to solve. Because even some of these things like central line associated bloodstream infections, there was a time when people would have said, well, those aren't preventable until guess what? People figured out how. That's right. So I'm not going to say 100% of these defined adverse events 
are preventable. I would say 100% of mistakes and errors are preventable. And yeah. then there's a certain medical knowledge frontier that would allow us to prevent some of the bad outcomes in the future right. as we learn and improve. No, and, and some of this comes from, uh, you know, we've invented more aggressive, uh, you know, invasive medicines to do very specific things that, you know, we haven't been able to do before, like cure cancer. And those have, you know, the, because of what how aggressive those medicines are, they can cause those adverse event uh, events. We haven't figured out how to not let that happen. So that's a that's a knowledge thing, right? We just have more more science to do. Right? Um, but mistakes or errors, you know, are 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 things that are preventable for a whole bunch of reasons, including process improvement, uh, training, uh, culture. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, you know, they, as as the expression goes, you know, oh, you know, from from the mouths of babes, um, honesty, I guess, you know, comes from 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 kids or you know, um, but not babies. But I got to go speak a couple of times to a high school program in San Antonio. It's kind of like an alternative college and kids. It's a partnership between the school district and the local community college, and it's a it's a really highly acclaimed program. Toyota sponsors it for like future manufacturing, advanced manufacturing professionals. But on the healthcare side of things, I got to come and give a talk. And, you know, these are kids who want to be uh, nurses, surgeons, pharmacists, all kinds of different careers. And I sort of tried to gently touch on the subject of errors and harm. And just, you know, they, they don't, they don't know what they don't know yet. And kind of brought up the idea of, let's say a wrong site or wrong side surgery. And he shares some statistics and the kids are stunned. Like they, they haven't yet considered that that might happen. But then you know, I, I asked them, well, how, why do you think things like that might occur? Not a single kid who raised their hand to say anything was blaming individuals. They're saying, well, these are bad doctors or dumb surgeons. I mean, like they they had such good intuition around, well, it, it's probably miscommunications or I think I remember another kid said like, well, well may, may, you know, may, maybe they were rushing, which again, you, you might say, well, that's not just an individual problem. If no. systemic problems have forced the surgical schedule to run five hours behind, it's inevitable that people might rush. So how do you prevent the situations where people pressure themselves into rushing and becoming more error prone or, you know, a kid might say, Oh, well, they, they might've been tired. I'm like, like God, these kids, I mean, they, they get it. Yeah. Which is why I like to go to, I like first appointments of the day for, for two reasons. The schedule can't get that far behind if the first appointment of the day um, and, you know, they're less likely to be tired. Um, I'll say less likely because plenty of people wake up tired, but yeah. But, you know, I, when I had my uh, knee surgery in, in, in November, I was sitting there in pre-op, you know, and at this point I'm locked and loaded. Like I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I have very little choice, but to go forward. Um, but I heard while I was sitting there waiting for my turn, I heard four things fall on the floor. I don't hmm. know what those things were. One was probably a pen, right? But, but nevertheless, I'm like, I know it's pre-op, not the actual actual surgical room, but I still think things shouldn't be falling on the floor with the prevalence they seem to be. Yeah. And do we not have a place to put things? Are we, are, you know, uh, do, do things not have a holder? Or is it is it interim processing? But 
you know, it was a little bit, you know, I, I, I all I'm hearing is process problems while I'm, while I'm sitting there, you know, ready to go under the knife. Um, but it, it's, it can be little things like that, right? Where, you know, you, you put something down in the wrong place, uh, you get distracted, you get interrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is, there is science, uh, I, I think mostly done by NASA on how much interruptions can cost you, cost you focus and things like that. And so, you know, you just, you just sit there and, and again, I'm, I'm watching with, you know, a process lens that I'm seeing somebody do something and someone asks them a question while they're in the middle of it. And then I hear them go, what was I doing again? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's how things go wrong. Right. So it, 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 it is, you know, it can be the environment, it can be the system, it can be the process and it can even be the training. Right. Um, uh, I, I also saw, and this is again, just sitting there for a little while in pre-op, I also saw a, a nurse trying to understand a standard work chart to mix a particular medication, I think for someone who is diabetic and the anesthesiologist had to come in and explain it because the chart wasn't self-evident. And I'm, I'm fine with all of that, except, you know, is that, was this, was this a new nurse asking the right question or was this a bad chart or, you know, these are the questions that I would be, I would be asking had I not been, you know, in a gown laying in a bed. (laughs) But before that moment, let me, let me ask this. I mean, is, is you're deciding you're being convinced by the doctor, you know, okay, you need this surgery as a patient, as a quote unquote healthcare consumer to think of, well, who should I have do the surgery and where should I have the surgery? Like, where would you even did was, was that even a consideration? Or do you say, well, I I don't know. I went to the I got referred to the surgeon and they seem to know what they're doing, and this is where they do surgery. So okay, I'm on board. Like, I mean, what yeah, what I mean, mo- most I'll, I'll say I didn't do a lot of research uh, relative to what I could have. I, I got a good referral. I I heard from multiple people that he was a good surgeon. Um, and and I was kind of like, well, okay. If he's not, you know, if he's not a lot of other things, once I'm unconscious, I want a good surgeon. <laughs> so I, I heard that from a lot of people uh, that 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 knew his reputation from various different sources. The, the the only thing on the location that to me was reassuring, and I don't know if this is valid or not, is that it was a standalone orthopedic surgical unit, mm-hmm. which meant it's not going to, you know, that's all they do. So they have their routines. It's a particular type of surgeries. Uh, they can fine tune to that to a narrower set of doctors with a narrow with a more specific set of expectations, and not mix in with, you know, heart transplants or whatever. Right. So, so I saw that as a good thing. It, w- it wouldn't have changed my mind because I was really selecting the doctor and trusting him to select the, the surgical unit. Um, but being, you know. But I do, you know, I do pay attention to that as I, as I go forward. But, you know, I, I don't also, as, 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 a, as a, I don't want to say self-proclaimed, because I almost never call myself this, but as a self-proclaimed expert in, you know, process improvement, I'm not an expert in this field. And so while I know how probable risks and mistakes can be, I'm also not really 
I'm also well aware of my limitations in judging their particular process. And, and data is really hard to find. I mean, you can look at yes. a CMS website and look for a star reading for a particular hospital. You could look at a leapfrog group letter grade. Um, but those those assessments are only as good as the data that's available. And a lot of hospitals refuse to report anything beyond the minimal data. They don't partner with leapfrog group to be transparent right. about their data. But you know, even at a hospital level, there could be variation in practices amongst um, surgeons, and there could be some operating rooms that are just dirtier than others. It shouldn't be that way. Um, you know, within a hospital or some of the older operating rooms that are maybe harder to clean, or with um, you know um, airflow that's not as good, or the infection rates higher in certain operating rooms. We certainly don't have knowledge or um, visibility to that. But I've, I've got this hypothesis that I've talked to a couple patient safety experts and including physicians recently that um, like what would be a high leverage piece of data? And one of those pieces of data, if it was publicly reported, what might be employee turnover rates. Mm-hmm. And I would draw, I would try to connect dots between all of the things being equal, higher overturn, higher turnover rates tells me there's maybe problems with the culture. There are maybe other issues. And it's not, you know, teams that haven't worked together as long. And you know, there might be a number of dynamics, but like that that data point right there, your your annualized voluntary turnover rate might be a predictor of of some of these other bad outcomes that we would certainly want to avoid as a patient. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, as we look at, you know, again, the data is not just not good enough, which is why this study that we, you know, we're kind of building this off of had to have such a low sample rate. Right. It's, it's kind of like, I always say this when, when I, when I work with an organization and like, how do we measure our problem solving? And, and quantity is easy, right? How many A3s did we do? Right. Mm -hmm. But what about the quality? Well, it's kind of hard to judge without opening up an A3 yeah. and evaluating it. And you can't, you can't do that with all the A3s because you'll, you'll invest an equal amount of resources in judging it as you do in doing it. It's labor right? intensive to do these reviews. Super labor intensive, right? And this is the same, you know, because we don't have the measurement systems, the data transparency, all these other things, this study had to be very narrow. Um, in order to go deep enough to make any sorts of judgments. So, so I, I think just this study methodology proves that uh, you know, we don't have a good grasp of the, of the problem. Uh, at least we don't have as good a grasp of the problem as we should relative to its importance and even relative to how much GDP we spend on it, right? If you just, if you just look at the GDP, you would think, well, okay, we're going to spend this many dollars on healthcare. Maybe we should spend some amount of dollars on studying it as well. But yeah, uh, those those yeah, I think we spent more dollars in studying much smaller problems than this. Yeah, I mean there there are huge opportunities to get better data, to get better sharing and learning across different organizations. I mean, if one organization has figured out how to reduce 
uh, how to basically eliminate Klebsia infections. And, and that was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. There's really no good excuse for why that hasn't happened everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's just not. And, um, you know, there, there, there are different um, opportunities and, and countermeasures being proposed. Let me make a plug real quick um, for a panel discussion I'm going to be hosting on January 25th with a couple of people who are really involved in uh, these proposals. And there was a bill introduced into the House last December, lame duck session. And I don't know from a political standpoint what will go anywhere, but there's this proposal for a national patient safety board, not at all coincidental that it sounds like national transportation safety board mm-hmm. would have certain um, certain responsibilities. You know, they're, they're not going to dive in and solve all of the patient safety problems at, at um, hospitals everywhere, but to have, you know, some body that, that has roles, including um, collecting data, doing some investigations, and, and then maybe more importantly, sharing knowledge. Um, maybe, maybe we can put a link in the show notes um, or people can contact me for information uh, about yeah, that. Yeah, no, let's, let's definitely share that. Um, and, and, and this is, you know, again, we do see evidence to your you know, point of hospital-acquired infections and things like that. There, there is evidence, and, and Dr. Berwick points to this, uh, where, where there was process improvement on known problems, you know, it, things got better. Yes. Right? And, and, and it sort of suggests, uh, you know, an important aspect, which is, which, which I love to talk about in problem solving, which is break down the problem. Right. Don't try to solve patient safety. <laughs> try to solve this adverse outcome from this cause. Now you have a possibility of success. Can't right. solve patient safety. Right? Yeah. That, that, but you can solve 101 different situations or sub-problems or specific problems within patient safety. Yeah. And if you break down problems and look at them one by one, cause by cause, process by process, you can make real progress. Yeah. And you know, that begins at a hospital level, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and to your to your one of big points is then it should it should be able to be spread further. Um, you would think all these hospital uh, uh, conglomerates that buy up hospitals and build big entities would make that better, but it it doesn't. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it it doesn't. And um, I'm going to be interviewing uh, a doctor. It's a psychiatrist who um, I talked to her the other day in advance of doing a, a podcast interview with her in, in one of the other podcasts I host called Habitual Excellence. And she she quit practicing medicine about 10 years ago. Um, I think as she put it, there's no business model that's um, compatible with doing the right thing for the patients and making having a reasonable living and a reasonable work-life existence. So she's got a book coming out soon. Uh, it's titled, If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First. Um, and there, 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 there are a lot of systemic issues, overburden, financial pressures, compensation, design. Then there's a lot of process issues. So I'll bring it back to lean. You look at examples where Toyota worked with children's 
health here in Dallas to reduce infections. It was a certain type of infection. And it comes down, I forget if it was that case study or others, but like, don't put sterile items down on the patient bed. Back to your point of like, do you not have a proper sterile place to put things down on? Like they they address lots of tactical little things. Now, my one concern, sorry that I named names, but it would be a concern either way, is that once Toyota's out of the picture, did they sustain anything? Mm-hmm. TSSC, the good people there, came in, drove great problem solving, drove results. Will it sustain? Um, but yeah, you're right. You got to break down the problem. Look at your Pareto chart of your your highest harms incidents, and there's probably some systemic problems where um, fixing some things that reduce that type of infection will also have positive effects elsewhere. But a lot of it then is you know kind of nitty gritty process improvement. But any hospital that wants to learn how to eliminate collapses can look at what's been learned and reported by uh, Dr. Rick Shannon. Mm-hmm. who learned from Paul O'Neill and he learned from Steve Spear. And like, I mean, the knowledge is out there, but wh- where are the competitive dynamics that would really make it necessary instead of nice to have? Yeah. And, and, you know, to the point around some of the, the, the psychological pressures that make, that, that get in the way of some of the learning and openness and experimentation, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, healthcare is healthcare is in a dire state right now, and and it, it, those pressures are are greater on uh, uh, that that really make things harder uh, harder than ever. We've had significant turnover, significant retirees. Um, we brought on a ton of new staff, which in in itself is a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, healthcare staffing around the world is hot. You know, isn't just a U.S. thing. Like, you go to almost any you know, de- developed country and the healthcare staffing is at new all-time highs, but demand is even higher. Right. And and so the the patient to 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 staff ratio has gotten out of kilter and, and it shows up in a whole lot of ways. Uh you know, hospital waiting times, uh, you know, cues to get elective uh procedures, uh, to get, you know, even lab results. Um uh, ambulances waiting outside hospitals to to drop off patients unable to like we won't you know there's we, we won't take that patient they sit not they sit in the ambulance for sometimes uh, you know ridiculous periods because they don't have a bed for them so and, and a lot of this has happened you know COVID is still you know a very big number in hospitals sure. um, you have an increase in other infectious uh uh, diseases, flu, and, and RSV being two that are talked about quite a bit. Um, and you have, you know, we, we talk about hijunka, right? In general, people get, you know, the biggest risk to level loading, hijunka, level loading demand in hospitals used to be population bubbles, right? Aging baby boomers creates a bubble which increases demand. But now we've created an artificial bubble because a lot of people deferred things over the last couple of years, both procedures and screenings and even elective surgeries and things like that. And now that is creating a bubble, which is is pinching and unleveling demand. Yeah. So so, you know, in, in the end, right, if people are under a lot of pressure just to get through the next patient, you don't have a lot of time to work on your process improvement. 
Well, I think, you know, there's two points I would make to that. One is like, don't let hospitals blame COVID for everything because these, these problems were problems before COVID. Absolutely. Safety problems, staff retention problems, quality of work life. That's, that's a really, that's a point. That's an old term that I pulled out. It's an yeah. auto industry term from the eighties, but you know, there's all been, you know, the, the, whether you call it burnout or moral injury, these things were already problems before COVID probably made worse by COVID in different ways. And then I think, as you're alluding to, these are not just American problems, right? Like this, this doctor author I talked to the other day, um, you know, talking about business models and I asked her, Look at other countries where it's government-run or government-funded healthcare, and you know is is this moral injury? Uh, you know these problems for providers just as bad in other places. She's like, oh yeah, yeah. If it's you know it if it's not um, problems caused by um, organization, you know the, the health systems or the the insurers, or in, in other countries, it's what you might call the tyranny of budgets. Like mm-hmm. oh, we've run out of money, and and that that interferes with doctors um, being able to fulfill their mission to do the right things for the patients. Right, and and that that mismatch of you know I want to do the right thing and you're not letting me do it is part of what creates that quote unquote moral injury. And it's more it, I'm still learning about this, but it seems more along the lines of like PTSD than it is like burnout. Like it's yeah, it's 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 more severe. And and gosh, you know, uh, then then quote unquote burnout, and and you know, I think she makes another good point too. Like, don't don't blame the people who are quote unquote burned out. You need to blame those that are creating the injury, whether we can figure out what to do about it or not. Right. Yeah, and and like most organizations, right? There's there's certain. We'll just use this in the case, and we're not we're we're not painting a too broad a brush here, but hospital administrators had to keep their distance during COVID, right? Lots and lots of isolation, lots and lots of separation, you know, work from home, uh, you know, don't don't just, you know, go do Gemba observations in a in a COVID ward just because you're curious, right? So so that became very, you know, that was already that to your point, that was already a problem. Disengaged hospital leadership made worse by COVID. And if it's, you know, if you haven't reversed that trend, it, it, how do I, how do I get to the point of activity to really see what people are going through? And there are a lot of complaints that have been made of, you know, the healthcare providers who are overburdened and not supported enough complaining about their executives who are all working from home. And like, there's something to be said for, you know, mask up, gown up, take on a little bit of risk. Don't don't ask your employees to do something you wouldn't do. Yeah, I think is an important leadership principle. But again, like even pre-COVID, I can't tell you how many times I've seen um, you know hospital executive leadership being in literally a different building that's not the hospital. And I'm not talking health system headquarters. Right. Like I'm talking like a relatively small town community hospital in the executive suite is like across the road, maybe mm-hmm. connected with, um, you know, a, a bridge, a covered climate controlled bridge across the road. And like, I'll make this analogy for this audience of like, could you imagine a factory 
how how good do you think a factory would be if um, executive leadership were um, in trailers on the far end of the parking lot for their offices? Yep, it wouldn't work. Although we've seen it, uh, and and uh, you know sometimes just an alleyway might as well be a thousand yards. Um, I you know we we've we've seen this in in you know I'll I'll share two extreme environments. Uh, you know, semiconductors. Uh, I worked with one manager who put badge access readers into the semiconductor clean room fab. Uh, is years and years ago, and and one of the things he learned is his managers were never going to the floor because mm-hmm. he had the data now because mm-hmm. <laughs> he had to scan in. Um, another extreme. Uh, years and years ago, we were working in a, an environment very heavy. Uh, very heavy metal, big things being welded. You you couldn't walk out on the floor without steel toe shoes, among other things, right? Among other PPE. And we were doing an event. Uh, it wasn't my event, but we were doing an event, and we had all these people that had to go out on the floor. And one of the one of the I don't know if they were an exec or a manager said, "Oh, I, I I've got to I've got to go get steel toe shoes." Mm. They, they didn't have them, which was just a clear evidence they never went. Out, out to the, out well, to the floor. Remind so, them they also need safety glasses with side shields. So, so, so not unique to healthcare, um, not a new problem, but again, work from home, COVID just created one more barrier from people going to where the work is done and understanding right. the condition people are dealing with. And and one other thing that all reminds me of, you know, flashback to my first year at General Motors when. I saw firsthand and learned how, you know, the uh, the UAW production employees cared about quality. Even after being in crappy work environments for 35 years, they had pride in what they knew they needed to do. And of countless examples of, of management making dumb decisions that hurt quality. And the employees would grumble about it. But... I don't think it kept them up at night. Like they still were getting, uh, they, sh- you know, they, they could have and should have been treated better. And the second plant manager I worked under, you know, it was a new me trained guy started changing that, but I don't think uh, it probably wasn't keeping him up at night. Like they, they would grumble, but I don't think it would rock them to their core. It's one thing to have, you know, a Cadillac engine that fails in the first hundred miles under a customer's hood. Right. I think you can live with that, but like, you know, this, this, uh, this level, I don't think the term moral injury would apply there, but when it comes to patient uh, physicians, you know, not being able to do what they think is needed for their patients, that that's, that's gotta be a, a whole different level of gut punch when yeah. leaders are making dumb decisions that hurt quality and safety. Agreed. Yep. That's a tough one. It's sad. So have we solved it yet? Another ounce of whiskey? Will that will that get us closer? <laughs> Another ounce of whiskey. Um, yeah, I got to measure this bottle. Hang on. Um, yeah, I, I think we're we're probably more than a bottle away from solving it. Yeah. But hopefully, we shine a light on you know the problem we face as a society first and foremost, as a hospital system, as patients, and you know, and and, and the ecosystem that serves all of that. And, uh, you know, many different problems to be solved, all interconnected. 
So, you know, don't just sit there and complain, understand it and understand either what you can do to protect yourself or what you can do to make it better. Or what you can do to help spread known proven solutions that are existing in small pockets. How do we make that the new norm? And then speaking of solutions, you know, I just wanted to give a, you know, kind of a final shout out to Don Berwick. I hope people will go read his piece. I mean, I've only met him briefly at one of their IHI national forums. The one year I was able to attend, um, you know, lean was a big theme that year. He talked about it in his keynote address. Like he actually had a really good definition of value, which he traced back to basically not just longevity, but quality of life. So value is not just quality over cost for that knee procedure, but what what's the impact to you, Jamie, mm-hmm. you know, of having that knee surgery? Right. You know, and and connecting the dots in 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 really meaningful ways between you know lean terminology and what that might mean in healthcare. And you know, he's not all lean all the time, but he's certainly not anti-lean, nor is right. IHI. You know, um it's funny, it's you know, it's it's all in Cambridge. IHI's offices were in uh, Harvard Square. Mm-hmm. LEI had um, offices when I worked there were two train stops down in Kendall Square by yeah. MIT. Yeah. Yeah. And Don Berwick and Jim Womack had met each other and knew each other well enough to basically um, LEI and, and the legal structure and the filings and the nonprofit status was completely modeled after IHI because mm-hmm. Don Berwick helped out Jim Womack. Right. A little historical tidbit there. Neat. So thank you to Don Berwick for, you know, that that commentary and the support for lean and, and how that needs to fit into, you know, back to your point of, of, of solutions, not just um, complaints. Yeah, he's a champion among champions without it, without a doubt, has been at this a long time. And I'm going to mention Dr. Deming, because Don Berwick was was of the era of, of having worked directly with W. Edwards Deming, along with um Paul Batalden and some of the other legends of, of, of that generation of people in the patient safety movement. The Deming yeah. influence is clear. And in, in his piece in the, in the journal, Journal of Medicine, New England Journal of Medicine, I hope people will, will read, Don Berwick still cites Deming and the phrase constancy of purpose. Right up front. I headline of the piece. Opening paragraph, right? And then the um, the other phrase, and this comes back to uh, maybe the complaining there, he uses the phrase missing in action mm-hmm. in the headline. So, you know, where, where has been the, where, 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 why haven't we had more progress? Has patient safety improvement been missing in action? I think that was part of his point. Yeah. Yep. So he's, uh, uh, he's the champion uh, of, of, of a lot of this and uh, mantle you've, you've helped extend and, and uh, um so, uh, you know, lots of work left to be done. Um, and, you know, as we indicated, we weren't going to solve it tonight over a, a glass of, of Glen's Creek, um, <laughs> as good as that might be. But uh, um, here's, here's my Glen's. I'm drinking water to hydrate out of my Glen's Creek uh, glass. And then as, as Dave noticed, I think before we started we talked to him earlier before. It wasn't a surprise that he jumped in. So <laughs> sorry to tell you how the sausage was made. I've got a uh, Glens Creek distilling T-shirt on, which uh, I think is now retro at this point. Yeah, that's retro because that's an old that's an old logo for him, I guess. Or old design, certainly an old T-shirt. So, 
Um, um, yeah, so I'm glad we. It would have been more fun to keep talking with Dave about whiskey and lean for an hour, but thanks. Well, we'll do that as, as you mentioned. Hopefully, we'll do that in person sometime, and and uh, you know, record over in in uh, in Glens Creek Distillery in Kentucky. So. So, so we, you know, we talk about the super serious stuff around healthcare. I'm uh, just calling back quickly to the last episode um, when we talked about Starbucks, which is far less meaningful. Um, have you been to a Starbucks since then, Jamie? Have you gone to Gemba? Have you no. had any customer observations? You need to do that. Come on. You know, I, I um, you know, I, I, I do because I make my own espresso at home with a, you know, a pretty decent machine and a single dose grinder and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I know the kind of espresso I get, um, uh, get there. I was actually, uh, where was I? Um, I was at a location and I, I need, it was, I think it was Bethlehem, but I, I needed to, I needed a spot to camp out in between some appointments and, and I found a coffee shop, which just, you know, wasn't, wasn't much better. Um, a little better than Starbucks, but not, not much better, but, um, <laughs> You should maybe do a side-by-side tasting of their, their quote unquote blonde espresso with the regular espresso. Tell me what you think. Maybe, but the beans, there's more to it than the beans. I'll just sure. say, uh, right. so I, an un, an un uh, burnt bean is, is probably an improvement, but, uh, um, yeah, when you're, you're really not gonna, uh, when, when it's just a push button, it's going to be hard to, uh, hard, hard to, create the same outcome as a craft, but you know, it's more reliable. It's more consistent, but hard to, hard to beat the outcome. So it's far more likely we'll get to do the episode with Dave than um, have some executive from Charbucks. I mean, Starbucks come in. uh... (laughs) Probably, probably, but we're open, right? We're happy, happy to, happy to have them, especially if they have some bourbon, uh, bourbon roasted beans or, you know, barrel, uh, barrel aged beans or whatever that might, whatever that might result in. So. Yeah. All right. So maybe we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that again next time. So um, I've already answered the question inadvertently um, that we're yeah, going to wrap yeah. up with. Um, I already mentioned my, uh, mine. I'll, I'll, I'll recap before we wrap up, but, but Jamie, is there a recent book you've read that's not about lean that you've read and would recommend? Yeah. So, you know, it's a book I'm reading now that I wouldn't recommend. And I, I, I have this compulsion to finish once I start. Do tell. Uh, I don't even remember the name of it. I, I, I'd have to go look it up because I, I, once I start reading it, but it's, it's about Russia and it's meant to underscore the culture of Russia and why Russia is the way that it is. Right. Cause we look at Russia and we go, Oh, it's irrational. Yeah. And, and this book is sort of arguing, well, yeah, but <laughs> If you look at what happened post-Soviet collapse of became yeah. a mafia state and uh, then an organized mafia that essentially kind of ended up as, you know, government acting like mafia, it, it all starts to make sense. But you've probably got to go back to the czars and you've had authoritarian leadership there for centuries. Yeah, you, you could. It, this book didn't. And, and so I, it was one of my complaints about the book is a little high on storytelling, a little low on analysis. But uh so it's personal taste, but um, uh, but but the the, the book I, I I did enjoy and find interesting was uh, and I always forget how to pronounce this ikigai, um, which That's is right. a, a Japanese word uh, that that is really about you know purpose in 
in life. And there, there's there's sort of a there's sort of a, a core take on this word that's Japanese that is, you know, it, it's it's why tea is served the way that it is. Because it's not about drinking the tea, it's about the purpose of the whole ritual and all of that. And so it's it's having purpose in what you do, relationships and and, and everyday purpose, um, you know, and staying active. Then there's a career version of uh, of this, which really co-opted that word, took another model that was already about career purpose, and then you know overlaid the two and say, oh, that's about purpose, and this was about purpose, so we're going to call this sort of career ikigai. Because there's diagrams, it's like a massive super Venn diagram that people love sharing on LinkedIn, right? Right. That that's the one I'm talking about, and it's not actually it, it, even the diagram is created by somebody else. It was not that diagram was not Ikigai, um, but since whoever created the diagram put purpose at the middle, and Ikigai is about purpose, then you know, uh, then. People renamed it uh, Ikigai, Career Ikigai, and that's what it's all about. And so it's a great Venn diagram. Don't get me wrong. Just uh, not it's not really what all Ikigai is about. And and for me, you know, it, it, there's all sorts of stuff in the book. Some, you know, some of it I go a little too far into, like, you know, you're, you're, you know here's the Japanese daily exercises, um, the radio. Uh, I forget the, the, the name of the, the daily exercises, but. Um, but it's an interesting book, really exploring about longevity in life and, you know, what keeps us going. And, you know, a lot of what I take away from it. So I, since I mentioned espresso, I'll use that as an example. I, I, you know, I could be efficient, hit, you know, hit a button on an espresso machine, go do other things, come back, drink my espresso. And it would be, you know, 80% as good as the espresso I make. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's not about just drinking the espresso. It's about the act of paying attention to what I'm doing, mm-hmm. trying to do it. Not, nothing about anything else while I'm making an espresso. I'm trying to do every step well, because if I don't, it'll it won't be as good. And so it's an immersion in what I'm trying to do and, and be with that moment, be with that process. And it still only takes a couple of minutes, but right. it's two minutes of complete focus on the task at hand, I'm not distracted by anything else or just trying to be efficient. And, and I think that's a lot about what I take away from the book. Um, yeah. I, I will say, um, you know, I find it interesting that there is this sort of undertone in lean cultures that, you know, everything Japanese is associated with lean and vice versa. And, and I, 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 I don't really appre- I appreciate Japanese culture. I've been there. I love it. Um, but there's things in Japanese culture that you can see in Toyota and there's right. things you can see in Toyota that you can't see anywhere else in, Toy- in Japanese culture. Right. Toyota is so, not like every other Japanese company. Not even close. So right. I, I like to say is the companies I've visited in Japan, I've, I've found more badly run companies in Japan than I have in America. Now I've also found some extremely well-run companies in Japan, but to me, you know, there's everything, you know, studying lean isn't about studying everything Japanese, but nevertheless, Ikigai is an interesting, interesting book. And so I enjoyed reading that. Yeah. Cool. Maybe and so you, you already mentioned your book, but uh, this is a forthcoming read for you, right? It, it will be. And oh, I was going to mention first, um, our, our mutual friend, Adam Zach, who joined us on an episode of Lean Whiskey, 
had reached out to me and I don't know if he meant to reach out to you because you had, he posted, yeah. okay. He reached out because you had posted about this book on LinkedIn and added me about me. And I, I'm like, I barely know the word, but Jane, you should, okay. So I'm glad um, got you connected. Um, so yeah, so the book I mentioned, I believe is coming out in March or April uh, because I'm interviewing one of the authors, Dr. Wendy Dean. I'll, I'll have an opportunity, I think to, to get an advanced read um, you know, first, when, when, when you had posed this question, I'll admit to not reading a whole lot while I'm in book writing and book finishing. Mode. Yeah, I get that way too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, like this this, this book, um, yeah, it's titled, If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First. And that phrase, if I betray these words, um, I'm trying to think if that's, I'm going to do a quick Googling, um, like that's got to come from the the Hippocratic Oath or something of like, you know, kind of swearing to uphold certain values. Right. And then the longer version of the phrase, so the, the book, you know, the, the longer version of the phrase is, may I be destroyed if I betray these words? That's a heavy burden that people in other fields and professions and dip, disciplines don't face right like if if you or I were to go do a crappy job giving a presentation or you know like nobody dies like it would be embarrassing and I'm not saying no we both lose sleep over it but (laughs) yeah and 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 notice it doesn't say may I be destroyed by lawyers right so um it's a self-accountability phrase um which is uh, uh which is an important aspect I think of of the healthcare professions and the professionals within it is self accountability. And uh, yeah. I think we, we sh- since we talked about healthcare so much, I think we shouldn't forget that that's, right. uh, that's the center of the bulk of that culture uh, is, is the deep desire to do well by patients. It's self motivated. And this might be historically accurate to say, um, considering how long I think the Hippocratic Oath goes back, um, of not angering the gods, plural. Right. So that's the moral responsibility. So uh, to the to the to the doctors and nurses and practitioners and healthcare who who do strive to learn and improve and make the system better and all the other people that make that happen. And of course, to David and Glens Creek Distillery. Cheers. So congratulations to Dave. And then I, um, I don't, uh, I don't think I'm betraying her trust. Um, Dr. Dean did mention to me that she had listened to my lean podcast and she had listened to lean whiskey. And I'm thinking, Oh no, like that's not the best representation. Well, no offense to this podcast, but she said, Oh, she listened to it because she likes whiskey too. There we go. So maybe, cheers. Uh, maybe another future guest. Cheers to Dr. Dean. And Jane, cheers, cheers to you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Lean Whiskey. To learn more or find more episodes, visit leanwhiskey.com, spelled either K-E-Y or K-Y. You can also visit leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey or jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We are very grateful for every rating, review, and follow. Until our next episode, cheers. Cheers.